And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! Oh, that's great. I'm, watch- I'm watching the graphic on that, and that just creates this wonderful little arrow-shaped thing as the podcast. <laughs> Hello, Gary K. Wolf. Hello, Jonathan. For the first time in a while, it's just you and me. It is indeed. We're, we are home. We are back from, well, I was going to say sunny Washington, D.C., but hardly sunny, uh, You know the, uh, where we got to sort of sit around, talk to friends, and do all that good stuff. Well, the World Fantasy, it's one I enjoyed. Uh, it's uh, Hyatt Regency conferences always have pluses and minuses. The, the pluses are they're pretty nice hotel rooms. The minuses yeah. are they're very large hotels. That's so true. There's, so which means that they book other conferences in with us. In this case, uh, there were two things while we were there. One was the Rolling Thunder. <laughs> yes, I'd forgotten about them. Memorial. For, don't forget the POWs. Don't forget the MIA people who are interesting to talk to. Uh, and from my mind, were more fun to share a hotel with than the you know, the accountants and, uh, and, and actuaries that we usually sell ho- share hotels with. That's one of the effects of having a large hotel. And then after the, after the rolling thunder people went away, um, we had a wonderful, enormous celebratory Indian wedding with yes, we drum did. costumes. It was, it was just stunning. <laughs> so, 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 so there's an advantage to having a small hotel which we will probably have next year in Saratoga Springs. Can't wait. Compared to hotel. And then we run the hotel. There's nobody there. Everybody you see in the bar is somebody you know. But there's also an advantage in running a conference in a hotel in which there are a lot of other things going on, because then you get to look weird. <laughs> I don't think we do look weird, Gary. Come on. We're just a bunch of people sitting around talking in a bar, aren't we? Well, we're talking about weird things. I got into a couple of conversations with the bikers, um, and I don't know whether they're primarily bikers or primarily vets, but they're clearly both at this point. Most of them are Vietnam-era vets. Uh, Joe Haldeman talked to them for a bit, and, and they knew what he was talking about, and he knew what they was talking about. They were talking about, although he did say, I think, that their interests at some point diverged since the 1970s. But... They're, they were kind of fascinated by what we were doing in a way that other people aren't. This one guy asked me, you're, you're into science fiction? Tell me why Fringe went off the air. And <laughs> I didn't have an answer for him. And after a few more minutes of conversation, I realized he didn't want to know why the series went off the air. He wanted to know why last night's episode went off the air. Which point I could ask him, because it was over. <laughs> Ah, uh, the rich fantasy life of world fantasy and other conventions. Exactly. I mean, we did get to record some podcasts. We did get some wonderful Four of them. Wonderful people. Yeah, and, and, and they're all, okay, for people who have been listening to us for four years now, they are all preserved. They are all yeah. real. They have not been lost in cyberspace. They are not hidden somewhere in a defunct iPad. That's they true. are actually going to appear. And should they we will. mention who they are? Well, the first one, which appeared last week, was the live podcast with Caitlin R. Kiernan and Peter Straub on the literary uses of fantasy. And that was quite a lot of fun. Uh, we didn't, it was our second live podcast ever. And we have already committed to appearing at World Fantasy in 2015 and doing a live podcast there. We also uh, restored or revisited the great lost, lost podcast of Guy Gavriel K., which was huge fun to do again. Probably covered completely different ground because we were, you know, a year and a half away from River of Stars instead of just about to see it come out. Exactly, but we can also offer that there is at least a slight titillating preview of the next novel to the extent that we at least know what it won't be about. Well, actually, there's a. I don't want to tease too much what the t- what what it is, but there is. If you're one of those people who goes around and pieces things together. There are a couple of elusive clues as to what the next book might be. Not even what it's not. We know it's not a new Katai book. Katai book. Yeah. He's quite clear about that. But there's something else. So that's interesting. Go listen when that comes out. Uh, we're also talking. We also spoke to Robert Shearman and Helen Marshall about their work, which was really interesting and a lot of fun. And possibly in the most fun episode we have ever done, just about certainly the most laughter-filled episode we've ever done. Yes. We spoke to Gardner Dazwa and Jack Dan. 
which was enormous chuckles. Um, and I have to say, one I would happily revisit if we ever get the chance. <laughs> Though, you know, there's a lot of a lot of stuff to talk to them about. They both live very interesting lives, at least in science fiction and fantastical terms. And one of the things you pointed out, and I don't want to preview the podcast too much, which I hadn't thought about until you pointed it out, is that Jack Dan, even though he's not done a lot, has a very distinguished career as an anthologist as well as Gardner. Well, you said not done a lot. He's done 40 or 50 anthologies probably. Okay, I'm wrong. He's done 40 or 50 anthologies. That's what I meant to say. Yes, and at least three and of them are all-time classic anthologies. The Wandering Stars anthology in the Field of Fire – some of these are really classic anthologies. Absolutely, absolutely. So, major anthologist, a very fine novelist and short story writer, and of course the you know, the, the inverse where Gardner has an enormous reputation as an editor, but is one of the great lost wonderful writers, particularly of the new wave, mm-hmm. you know, or post new wave period, you know, sort of having written in the late sixties through the seventies and delivered a string of just astoundingly wonderful short stories, and we talk about that a little in the uh, in the podcast. And those, so that's what, mm, yeah. And it was it was wonderful to discover. Uh, I've, I've been in touch with uh, with Jim since this that that both Rob Sherman and um, and Helen Marshall were admirers of um, of the James Morrow novels. Yes, uh, Godhead trilogy. And we expect to have James on in a few weeks. If we I fervently hope so. I mean, I've not read the book yet. The new one, Galapagos Regained. I know you have. Mm-hmm. I'm very eager to read the book. I confess, very very eager. Uh, James Morrow wrote two of my all-time favorite novels. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is The Way the World Ends and Towing Jehovah. I think he's just spectacularly wonderful and woefully underappreciated and talked about, so it'll be a delight to have him on. I would say that, that'll be in the new year, though. The book comes out in January, I think. So the book comes out in early January. Yeah, so, so that would yeah. be a fine time to talk to him. And we actually have you know, a line of things lined up for the new year. We're talking to a bunch of people. We're scheduling. We're actually planning people. You know, uh, the three the three world fantasy podcasts you'll probably hear through December when we go on personal hiatus, mm-hmm. and we'll touch on that subject and why in a moment because there's a good reason we're going on personal hiatus. Um, and while, while so while we're on po- personal hiatus, will be a little bit of cl- planning and preparation for the new phase of the podcast that starts in 2015. But. One of the reasons we have to go on personal hiatus is because it's the end of the goddamn year, Gary. I wasn't aware of that. Thank you for pointing that out to me. It's the end of the goddamn year. And you know what just showed up in my email box this week? What? 2015 magazines. Oh, dear. Well, I just turned in to you today my 2015 column for Locus. So we're all thinking this is one of the things that happens when we're – as some people have accused us of being – like insiders, which I don't know what that means, but it's true. Everything we're reading and thinking about now is 2015, so it's it's a time warp kind of thing. Well, I mean, it, that's partly true. I've, I actually got permission to d- deliver my best of the year later than I ever have before. So I will be delivering it after Christmas, having at one time in, the, in my life delivered as early as mid-September. And what that means is I have to actually think about 2014 and 2015, and it's it does my head in completely. And then the family want to go to do things like Christmas. You remember Christmas? So, but anyway, we, we begin to, la- to, to launch on, on uh, the, 25th, the 2014 rec- you know, end of the year process. I know it's mm-hmm. of minimal interest to anybody who's not into insiderness, but I've commenced my annual role as the compiler of the Locus short fiction recommended reading list. And I've already got a list with a couple hundred stories on it. We just saw the first iteration of the Locus recommended reading book list come out to go around mm-hmm. to the various compilers to talk about and discuss and think about and all that kind of good thing. So there's lots and lots of things happening. And I also saw, and I've just I sent you a link to this, Gary. I don't know if you've looked at it yet. Uh, mm-hmm. We've also sent out the first um, of the, uh, what do you call them, lists? The, the first of the, um, this, was just, this is terrible. I sent out the Amazon list. Amazon named their best uh, short fiction, best science fiction books of 2014. I've just become um, dyslexic. Sorry, everybody. I'm trying to look at that link right now. Well, one of the things, okay, just without going into too many details, because we probably will do a best of the year podcast at some point soon. Do you think that something looked like a really good, productive, revolutionary, unprecedented year in science fiction? Nah, I don't. 
I think okay. it's been, I, I think it's been okay. Standard caveat, right? Um, the standard caveat is that any year when it comes to publishing is a random chance of who happens to publish. Yeah. And some part of me wants to say, no, it's not been a particularly revolutionary year. And I can look at good, solid, middle-of-the-genre books. I could name, just in science fiction, Gary, books like Proxima by Stephen Baxter, War Dogs by Greg Bear, Ship Starbuck oh. by Benford and Niven, Sybilla Byrne by James Corey. These, these books, all by guys, I admit, are all middle-of-the-genre kind of books that you'd expect. They're not revolutionary. Yeah. They're not going to change anything. On the other hand, it's also the same year where we got books like Wolves by Stephen Ings. Bone mm -hmm. Clocks by David Mitchell, where we got books like uh, Sarah Tolmy's The Boat, uh, what is it, The Boat People, The Boat, um, Stone Boatmen, um, and, and, have, and Nina yeah. Allen's The Race, and so, so th there's been mm -hmm. some really interesting stuff, but I don't know if it would allow you to characterize the year as experimental or not. Well, I mean, one of the things that shows up uh, these days, and I, I don't think we should probably... Uh, over-anticipate this uh, because we are going to talk about it later, is we do get um, novels. We, 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 every year we seem to have more novels that come out of uh, non-science fiction communities, the mainstream community. Station Eleven by Emily St. You'll have to collect, correct me on the name. Um, uh, em Emily St. John Mandel. Yes. Emily St. John Mandel, who's one of the young, hot uh, sort of New York writers. I'm sort of indirectly connected to this world um, through our friend Peter Straub and his daughter Emma, and it turns out Emily is a friend of hers, and, and they all know people like Ben Percy who wrote a werewolf novel. There's a lot of genre material which is being used sometimes in very creative and interesting ways by writers that um, are marketed and basically reviewed outside of our genre. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to overlook literary science fiction or fantasy novels. Um, if, if, for example, let me give you an example, because because this relates to our podcast uh, that we did with um, with Peter and Caitlin Kiernan. The Drowned Girl was, by most standards, Peter described it on the podcast, as one of the best novels of the last 10 years. There's no doubt in my mind that it probably is. I can't claim that I've read a thousand novels in the last 10 years, so I don't know. But had Caitlin R. Kiernan been either an unknown writer or a writer with mainstream literary credentials, I think that would be widely recognized as one of the best novels of the last 10 years. Uh, so, so there are two things going on here. One is that we in the genre tend not to look at outsiders treading on our turf, even though they might be very good writers. And the mainstream community, as always, tends not to look at science fiction, fantasy, or horror. That's true, to some degree. I mean, it's, it's obviously impossible to know. It really is impossible to know. But I can certainly see why you characterize that, it that way. I mean, I can look at a handful of books from this year. Um, obviously, the, the Mandel novel that you just mentioned, the David Mitchell mm -hmm. novel, the Nick Harkaway novel, and about the, the, um, the, the Mike, Mike Michelle Harkaway. Faber book, uh, the, you know, which also came yes. out this year. Uh, the, right. the Book of All Things? The book of new, th the book of new things, or something like. Oh that. goodness, we're in trouble! Everybody's going to mock us now. They're going. It's, it's this crazy podcast, people. But setting aside that we're crazy podcast people. Um, well, well, my question is, how many of our listeners know about these books? I mean, is this something that's just you and me that we don't get to see? These? I've not seen the Emily St. John Mandel book. I've not seen the Nick Harkaway book, and I've not seen the Michael Faber book. Um, so, I've seen how many more. of us have seen them? I've certainly seen them all, and I would expect okay, that uh, most of our readers were aware of them, if nothing else, or you know, our listeners. Um, we've got a fairly cluey crowd. I mean, I don't think we can sit here and suggest that the group we have aren't reading these things, uh, and certainly a whole bunch of people who are great friends of the podcast, I'm thinking about people like uh, James Bradley, who we spent time with in Washington as well, are eager followers of, of books exactly like this. So it's a big part of what we're looking forward to. I think that's true of some of our listeners and some of our participants on the podcast. I guess the point I'm making, and one of the reasons I want to read more of these books, is that in the past, it's been very easy for those of us in genre to look with disdain upon somebody who writes, somebody who's a mainstream writer who writes a bad science fiction book, a, a Michael Crichton, or a John Updike, or a Paul Theroux. 
Today, I think, we're dealing with a younger generation of writers, of interesting writers, who basically, Marcel Theroux is another one, who wrote one of the most interesting science fiction novels of last year. These are people who really are not interlopers in the sense we used to think of. They've read science fiction, they've mastered some of the tropes of science fiction, they know what they're talking about. It's entirely possible that Station Eleven, for example, which is a post-apocalyptic novel, um, is a really fine novel, and it may or may not be the case that the post-apocalyptic setting defines the virtue of the novel, yep. but it's nevertheless something we ought to be paying attention to. My point is that younger mainstream writers using science fiction and fantasy and horror tropes are doing so in a much more sophisticated manner than they did 20 years ago. I think that's probably true, or at least partially true. I think also you still see marketing departments struggling with this very issue, but being more willing to engage with the fact that, in effect, you know, these writers are writing science fiction or stuff that is of interest to science fiction. But yeah, I mean, I think to synopsize it in the crudest way possible, the Michael Chabon generation and beyond mm-hmm. are really very well versed in the in the background of the field and are mm-hmm. willing to express that in the work they're creating, even if what they're creating isn't primarily science fiction or fantasy. I mean, you do have people like Lev Grossman who, you know, they've got a fantastic literary pedigree and in the, you know, in the mainstream, but are writing real you know, center of the genre novels. And we shouldn't be surprised about that anymore. It really almost shouldn't be anything that's worth commenting on anymore. Just like, you know, if I read one more comment about blurring genre boundaries, I'm probably going to hit somebody because it's not we, we know it's nothing new but we keep on saying gosh it's nothing new um it's again barely worth talking about because it's such a common place throughout the genre now well yeah it, it is and i think that and, and you're right and and you probably shouldn't maybe i should revise that column i just sent in you to in, in today for the january because i talked about blurring genre genre boundaries and again um in the context of Harlan Ellison, who, by the way, was doing this in the 60s and 70s, so it's not, you're absolutely right, it's not something new. That's not the issue. Uh, mm-hmm. I, don't think it's, uh, I, I don't think it's shocking. I think, I think what you mentioned with the marketing departments is what's interesting. Um, there has been, and I, I was told this, not recently, but a few years ago, by, by marketing people that, you know, if you, if you make a book like Station Eleven, or like uh, the Faber book, or, or one of the, or, or like Andrew Wiles' book. If you make it too visible in the genre community, there are, there's a fear that that will stigmatize the book to some extent. Mm-hmm. In other words, the marketing people have this dilemma. They want to get as much of a mainstream audience as they can. They want to make the book a bestseller. They would love to get the science fiction and fantasy readership as well. But if going after the science fiction readership puts at risk mm-hmm. the mainstream solo readership, you know which choice they're going to make. Well, they have to chase book sales, and that's an entirely reasonable thing for a marketing department to do. You know, Even though, as, as uh, Ursula Le Guin magnificently pointed out this week in her National Book Awards speech, which I, I'm sure you've listened to, uh-huh. you know, there are other things to, that artists should be pursuing in the modern era, even if we leave marketing departments to, to their business. I'm glad you raised the um, National Book Awards speech from Ursula Le Guin, which I thought was just stunning. And I, I listened to it, and I thought afterwards, how are we ever going to get another Ursula Le Guin? We're not. You don't. I mean, you don't get no, another don't. of anything. I mean, you know, but not if they're worth is, anything. But, but, but the very first lines of those speech where she was accepting this award on behalf of all the other despised writers like herself who wrote science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, was completely unapologetic for that. Went after Amazon by the throat. Um, mm-hmm. Somebody said in a comment afterwards that was the I forget the word they used. Uh, the toughest, the most outspoken, the most confrontational, the most controversial National Book Award speech ever given. I don't know if that's the case or not. But she was, and has been, and was when she was on the podcast not only unapologetic, but really proud of the field that she came from. And I, think, I think that's true. I mean, she, I think she said in a related interview somewhere beforehand that she didn't necessarily start out looking to write science fiction or fantasy, but that she found that her work was best received by editors there, and so she turned her attention to it and began writing more in that area. 
and of course it's been on on apologetic. I mean, it does. I had an unrelated conversation which grated with me in a different way, because I adore the work of Le Guin and I respect her enormously, but she's such a default expl- you know, example these days. You know, Wh- who's a great female writer? Ursula Le Guin and some other people. Um, and I think it's wonderful that she was able to stand up as an elder of not only our field, but of literature internationally and say those kind of things. Because well, it's important that they're said, and it's hard for some people, or some people feel it's very hard for them to say, say them. I think that's true, and I think that uh, probably nobody but Le Guin should have, could have made that speech. Yeah. Uh, but by and large, there's also the sense, I guess, that you that you come away from it with that um, she's she's not trying to make us look respectable. She's starting with the assumption that respectable. And the phrase she used that struck me most when she talked about realism, and I have no problem with realism. I like realistic fiction. If I had time, I'd read more of it. Uh, I might not go as far as reading Jonathan Franzen, but when I was a kid, I loved John Updike. I loved Philip Roth. I loved Hemingway and Faulkner. Well, Faulkner is not quite realistic. But when she talked about fantastic literature, she talked about writers who write in a higher form of realism. And that's a terif- terrifically provocative and important insight. The, the, that's the saying, saying that people who write in our fields, and by our fields I'm including science fiction, fantasy, horror, magic, realism, and whatever blurry things uh, in, are included in that, yeah. that, that those are a version of realism. Those are a higher version of realism. The realism as... I'm sure, actually, Faulkner would have put it, the realism of the human heart as opposed to the realism of representation. Yes. I'm sounding way more pretentious than Le Guin did. How she managed to <laughs> say all this stuff, such simple words. That, that's, that's because she is Le Guin and we're not. I mean, what, every, you know, people comment on, on how Le Guin writes brilliant political fiction. Uh-huh. And yet, what always strikes you is the fact that she never writes overtly political fiction. She writes wonderful stories, beautifully and simply told, that evoke her political point without ever striking you across the head with it. Yeah, you know, that's her genius. Absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's, it, you're absolutely right. It's never homiletic. It's never preaching. And for people who, p- people who I've talked to some people recently um, about Le Guin and uh, mainstream readers, largely literary people, uh, who are very impressed with the left hand of darkness. They're very impressed with the dispossessed. They're very impressed with the lathe of heaven. They're very impressed with always coming home. And I tell them they should go back and read Lavinia, which is only, what, six or seven years old now. Mm-hmm. One of her most recent novels, the one that deals basically with uh, the wife of Aeneas. And it's exactly that. It's it, it's as sharp and lively and uh, entertaining and engaging as her classic classic novels of the late 60s and the 70s were. Yeah. It's true. So, yeah, we could go on for quite a while praising Ursula K. Le Guin. But, uh, but, let, let, let me push some, your own question back on you, my friend, though. I mean, you um, asked me how I would characterize 2014 as we be, you know, begin the task of doing so. You have read far more novels than I. Uh, you have participated in 40-plus podcasts. You've attended more conventions, in fact, more major conventions than I have done, as you do each year. So tell me, how would you characterize 2014? Oh, I knew you were going to do that to me. I think 2014 was, um, I probably said the same thing about 2013. I produced some major works. I produced some very interesting, very innovative works, some of which were conclusions of works that had begun earlier, like, for example, Hanu Rayunimi's The Causal Angel. I think that's a very important trilogy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that this brings it to a satisfactory conclusion. I wasn't that satisfied with the middle volume. I was very impressed by the, by the first volume in it. But it, because it's a continuation of a series that began in a previous year, it's not a revolutionary work. Did I see any revolutionary works that made me think, this is really uh, going to change the nature of science fiction? Did I see an emerging William Gibson or an emerging Greg Egan or an emerging Ursula Wynn? Probably not. Uh, we don't have a right to expect that every year. Either. Well, I don't think we do have a right to expect it, but I mean, we saw some interesting first novels, which is a good thing. 
Mm. Probably a slightly weaker year generally for first novels than I would hope to see, I have to say. You know, um, probably the outstanding... Sorry? Go ahead, and, go ahead and finish your thought. I was going to say, well, probably the outstanding first novel of the year, Sarah told me, is The Stone Boatman, followed probably mm. by Nina Allen's The Race, and I liked Rurik Davidson's On Rep Sky a great deal. But when I look across it, and I, I may be missing something obvious, and then I will go, of course. Uh-huh. But when I look at it at a glance, that's what strikes me, that apart from you know, a thin smattering of very good first novels there really weren't the the, the number of really qu- high quality first novels that i'd like to see well I, and again you're looking fairly within the genre if i'm not if i'm, if I'm not mistaken the quick which i think was by laurie Colwyn, again marketed as a mainstream novel again it's a vampire novel but nevertheless i i read enough of it to think this is really well written i don't think that has had a high profile in our field at all no again because marketing outside the field. Uh, I don't know how well it's done. I don't think it hit the Times bestseller list. But uh, I, I, I think if anything is, is, is both a sanguine and a cautionary uh, fable, it's probably the books like that or Station Eleven are becoming more and more uh, recognized as, as, as mainstream figures. I mean, so is our, is our field keeping up? I guess one of the questions is, are the new novelists in our field, by our field, I mean this defensive perimeter we build around what we think of as genre, are they keeping up with the younger writers, the post-Chabin generation that you described, as well as they could? I don't know. Um, I, I'm not sure of any, I mean, you mentioned the Stone Boatman. I thought it was a good first novel, um, and I'm glad it was there. There's another first novel, which I'm reading now, also from Aqueduct, and I'm blanking on the writer's name, but it looks very creative and has wonderful blurbs from Elizabeth Hand and James Patrick Kelly. I could probably go put my hands on it in a minute. So there are things like that that are, that are striking, but not high profile. Yeah. So I think one of the things that we're learning from, 20, 000, from 2014 is that to find interesting new writers, uh, you have to go to small presses. Well, I don't believe that's true at all. I mean, I really don't no. believe that's true. No, I think that's a, a simplistic approach. I mean, the, the, the small presses are wonderful, and I have yeah. enormous affection and respect for them. I've worked with them. I've worked for them. Uh, I've even run one a little bit. So it's not that. But I think I don't think it's in, intrinsically more likely that you'll get a great first novel from a small press. You know, that you just have to take them into account. I mean, the Stone Boatman is widely lauded. There's also a, you know, I think the other book you may be thinking of is The Haunted Girl by Lisa Bradley. Is that the one? That's not the one. That's not the one? Mm, Lonely Stardust? No. I'm going to grab it right now. You should it do that is... because otherwise we're going to be fishing around. Oh, no. It's Elysium by Jennifer Marie Brissette. Well, there you go. And it's very striking. It does something with gender roles I don't think I've seen before, and that's something okay. that's hard to do, but I haven't finished it yet, so okay. I can't wait. No. So, I mean... There are some fantastic books coming from places like Aqueduct and other small presses. I mean, UConn have done some interesting stuff. I mean, they've done the Nina Allen novel. Yes. Um, but, and, and you also get oddities where you get self-published novels. There'll be more self-published novels as we go along, and we have to take those seriously. I mean, we had Gwyneth Jones publish a, a self-publish a novel this year, which was surprising for all sorts of reasons that it came out that way. Well, not the least of which is that she's Gwyneth Jones. She is one of the major figures in the field. Um, yes, but nonetheless. And, and I, I guess for all that I could sit here, okay, I, I could not honestly sit here and pretend that this isn't a good time for, for new writers. It's just that 2014 may not be a particularly great year itself for first novelists. I mean, Anne Leckie was a first novelist last year. She had a second significant major novel this year. Um, Cameron Hurley, who's actually up to her fourth book, had a major novel out this year. E.J. Swift... Com- uh, has uh-huh. completed a significant trilogy um, that started with with Nightshade and and has completed in the, in, the, in the UK just recently the Osiris trilogy I think it's called and there are uh, you know other writers around with that sort of I mean Ken Liu has his first novel coming out we saw we saw Jennifer Valentine's second novel this year with a new science fiction novel due out next year you know there are an array of writers Catherine Valentine for all of Valenti that for all that she's got quite a lot of work out now hasn't been writing that long really you know 
there is a very strong, solid generation of male and female writers out there. I think you make a good point, and I think we sometimes get a little bit obsessed with first novels. As you know, I run the Crawford Award, which looks only at first fantasy books. We have a first novels category uh, in the Locus Awards. And you've just mentioned a lot of writers who are not first novel writers, but who are still relatively new writers doing really interesting work. I mean, why doesn't somebody put together an award for the best second novel, the best third novel or something? Because you have these exciting writers, uh, and you mentioned Genevieve Valentine. I love the girls of the Kingfisher Club. I thought that was a really um, magical book. As a matter of fact, one of the things I thought we were going to probably talk about before this podcast was over was something that the Chicago Tribune asked me to do, which is write a, write a Christmas gift roundup mm-hmm. for people who are science fiction readers. And one of the books I put on my list was, was the Genevieve Valentine novel because it has the feel of a holiday book. It has the feel of kind of warm, nostalgic, but tough-minded feel of a book that you want to read during the holiday season. And again, she's, it's only her second novel, but it's... It's, it makes her career more interesting than her first novel alone did. I guess that's what I want to say. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I do think it's an interesting thing to uh, to ask yourself, and this is preempting a proper end of the year uh, episode, which we may or may not do. We we are talking about doing one. Uh-huh. You know, what are the five items that you would place on someone's you know a shopping list as a g- possible gift list for your favorite science fiction, fantasy, and horror reader? In 2014, we're four weeks away, five weeks away from Christmas. Everybody should be ordering stuff, and there are books, and there are films, and there's all kinds of other things. I mean, based on my experience at the recent World Fantasy Convention, I would suggest that a fine single malt would make a great present for many of your favorite science fiction and fantasy readers, because there seems to be a strong correspondence there. Well, it is with our crowd, anyway. But okay. What are the five things, Gary, off the top of your head? I'll, I mean, I'll go first if you want me to. I'm trying to go up five. That you would suggest five books. What are the five books that you would recommend for uh, science fiction and fantasy readers from 2015 or 14? I'll start with William Gibson's The Peripheral. Fair enough. It's a real science fiction novel. People, people who started out, I don't know if this is true or not, but it seems to me from talking to people, that uh, people who loved the Sprawl trilogy, people who started out with Neuromancer and Mona Lisa Overdrive and so forth, um, may have gotten confused by, by some of his science fiction novels that aren't quite science fiction, or maybe you don't know they're science fiction because you're not as cool as, as Gibson is. But The Peripheral is the most science fictional science fiction book he's written in, I'm going to say, 10 years. Oh, sure. Yep. That's one. Okay, you've got one now. Oh, we're going back and forth? Okay. Oh, we're going uh, back. Okay, that's fine. That's okay. I would recommend, if you can find a copy, Academic Exercises by K.J. Parker, which probably gets my pick for the best fantasy short story collection of the year. It features, I think it's about a, a dozen major major stories, including two World Fantasy Award-winning novelettes, all set in, or novellas, set in the his world of the studium. And they are sharp and funny and precise and perceptive and wonderful and it's easily one of the overall best books of the year and i think anybody who loves science fiction and fantasy would almost certainly be delighted to find it under the christmas tree now do you believe that's true of people who love science fiction because that's really a collection okay well sorry it's a fan for fantasy yes okay, if, if fantasy. you're if you have a reader who only wants to read hardcore space space opera or something they're probably going to look at you quite oddly but mm. a fantasy reader would i think would love academic exercises uh, I, I tend to agree with that, and I think it is one of the best collections of the year. And if, if, if we're including fantasy, um, one of the things I, I just thought of this on the moment might be Lucia Shepard's *Beautiful Blood*, mm-hmm. which is is the Griol novel. It's not. I don't think it's the big Griol novel that he thought was out there somewhere, but it's the only one we've got. That's true. And it's a lovely novel. It's your turn. My other recommendation... Okay, I had to write this column for the newspaper a couple of days ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Part of it is... Well, the other other things I recommended were to pick out a year's best anthology because, by and large, I don't think all science fiction writers read them. And the way I recommended it to readers of the Tribune are that if you 
like science fiction and fantasy, and maybe a smattering of horror, then then your year's best science fiction and fantasy, or Rich Horton's best year's science fiction and fantasy, would be appropriate. But for the core science fiction reader, the Gardner de Zois, 32nd annual volume, I believe, those are almost always uh, reasonable, because I don't think people necessarily buy all of them. Yeah, of course. Okay. I would strongly recommend for the lover of fantasy and science fiction in your life who has a taste for young adult fiction, mm-hmm. Monstrous Affections, edited by Kelly Link and Gavin J. Grant, which is, a, I guess, a, a another anthology from Candlewick in the line of their, you know, in the same vein as their earlier book, which escapes my memory right now from a couple of years back. This is spectacularly wonderful stuff. Has a great story, but great stories by Alice Sola Kim, by Kelly Link, by Holly Black, by Paolo Bacigalupi, with a particularly left field story from him, uh, and is easily one, if not the best, fiction anthology of 2014 that I read in the genre, in the top two or three. That actually was on the list. I turned into the Chicago Tribune for much the same reason, and partly not because not only because these are terrific stories. Because, as you mentioned, the Paolo Bacigalupi story is not what you expect. The fantasy stories are not necessarily from writers you associate with fantasy. And the science fiction stories, there are a couple of really kind of, well, space operas, are not from people you associate with space operas or hard science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so every story in it is a surprise, even if you think you know the author involved. And that is a terrific anthology. Okay. Um, so what else did I have on my list? You, uh, we've got two each so far. Was that all? Yeah. <laughs> uh, wait, but did I mention the girls of the Kingfisher Club? And I've, I've mentioned three. I mentioned the year's best anthologies, <laughs> Genevieve Valentine, and well, the William. Gibson. So I'm, you I'm, hadn't, I'm, well, you hadn't I'm, mentioned the Valentine in the context of this, Gary. Of, of well, the best of it is now. So I okay. Got okay. Well, fa- well, fair enough. I, I would add Half a King by Joe Abercrombie, which is an enormously fun dark YA swords and sorcery slash fantasy novel. I think it would uh, satisfy any Game of Thrones reader pretty much as much as it would a YA reader. And certainly anybody in their late teens who likes that sort of stuff would love it. It's the first book in a series. The second one's due out in January or February. And I think the third one's just been finished according to Joe's Twitter feed. Um, was it was a, a lot of fun to read. A lot of fun. So I, I would strongly recommend it. I agree as well. And, 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 and again, what we're coming back uh, to here is the idea that if you have adult readers, this is a young adult, it's marketed as a young adult book. Um, I don't think that it makes any difference whether you're a science fiction friend um, think, or is a young adult or not. It's, it's, it's the sort of thing which is a very much on the ground, straight ahead uh page-turning fantasy series, and when we had Joe on the podcast, he basically said, yeah, he wanted to write a page-turner, and, and he completely succeeded in that. Mm-hmm. Return. Return. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, as we're doing this, I'm on my computer trying to call up the column I sent in. Are you? Ah. I'm doing that. What else do they have? So I'm just I'm just kicking back, looking at a wall of books, picking things that, that stand out, because honestly, I could name a dozen things. Uh, I, I could easily do that too. I mean, the, what was interesting is I had a limit of four or five, and sure. And the, the issue is this: the issue is there's another way of looking at this. Uh, when we talk about recommending things that our listeners, who are presumably well versed and intelligent and sophisticated about science fiction, might give, uh, it seems to me that one of the things that's equally valid is. How do you tell somebody who's not a science fiction reader what would be an appropriate gift for you? Mm-hmm. Now, let me mention, okay, okay, somebody, let's say, um, there's, if somebody's a, by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll plug a friend of ours, if somebody's a big fan of Greg Egan, they could buy an academic book, they could buy Karen Egan's book about Greg Egan, or they could buy the That'd entire book. Karen Lothar Burnham's book, you mean? Karen Burnham, what did they say? Karen Egan. Karen, okay, Karen, Karen. <laughs> Karen Burnett's book on Greg Egan. I should actually edit this rather than just <laughs> criticize oh, comment on oh, air. But yeah, okay. It's so, okay. So you've recommended that. But the thing is this. You've had, I, I'm sure you've had this experience, and I've certainly had this experience. Uh, people know you're vaguely interested in that sort of thing, in quotes. 
and uh, let's. Uh, I, 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 I got from family members a few years ago a copy of Twilight. Yep. Um, and it was, um, it was, they were trying to think of what I might be interested in. It was a big bestseller. So let's say you're a Greg Egan fan. Uh, let's say you really liked the Orthogonal Trilogy and even more importantly, understood it. And somebody gets you a copy of Divergent or the entire Diver- Divergent Trilogy in a box set. How do you tell people, no, that's not what I read? It, it's, it's not simple because it's, because it's from the outside, I guess a Greg Egan novel looks very much like um, any other science fiction novel. You know, and, and you could turn and say, well, somebody who likes a Greg Egan novel may like a Hanu Ryan Yemi novel and would probably like something by Ted Chang. But how do you explain to them that somebody who would like a Greg Egan novel may not like a James Corey novel, even though they're both science fiction? Well, here's the I other thing that affects mm-hmm. uh, No, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, yeah. Um, the other thing that affects that, which I think is... One of the few areas of book marketing that still depends on the physical bookstore. People who are buying you or I or our friends Christmas gifts are probably not going to go on Amazon and find something by searching. They're probably going to go into walk into the bookstore, walk into the science fiction section, which means they probably won't find the Greg Egan novel. They might. They probably will find the James Corey novel. Uh, they probably will find lots of things that are Star Wars and Star Trek tie-ins. Yes. In other words, Christmas gifting, in, when it comes to books, depends more on bookstores than most other things depend on bookstores. True. And what we're doing here is, I mean, I know we're talking to, to a, you know, a, a genre audience. We're talking to people who love science fiction and yeah. fantasy and are aware of it. And so when we try and come up with recommendations for perhaps talking more within ourselves but i mean my life experience is you 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 generally if someone's going to buy buy you stuff that's in the middle of the genre you give them a list and hope that they'll follow it oh okay well that's that's way more sophisticated than i am i mean honestly it's either you give them a list and hope they'll follow it or they end up going down to i mean having to go to a specialist bookstore and i mean if there is one in your town you know i mean i would be saying by all means, if you're living in San Francisco, go to Borderlands and say, I know someone's a science fiction reader who happens to like James Corey. Do you have something that they could, you know, would like? If you're here in Perth, where I am, go to Stefan's Books and do the same, and Stefan will be able to recommend something to you that will do will, will do that. Okay, but, that's great. I don't... But, hmm? What? Finish your thoughts. Sorry. So, so basically, I mean, that that's what the specialist bookstore does for us in a way that no other bookstore can, I think. I mean, even your... But, but even a general bookstore can hopefully give you some idea. But really, that's what you want to do. If you, I mean, it's not actually a bad rule of thumb, and this is an obvious ramble through a very rambly podcast, Gary. Well, yeah. That um, if you're trying to give someone a gift in an area that they're a specialist in, or have a specialist taste in, going to a specialist store makes sense. I mean, uh, if my... Dear, dear wife wanted to get me a bottle of single malt whiskey at the moment, she would probably go to a single malt specialist and ask them for recommendations based on what she's seen around the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, you know, when, when we sit here and we recommend three out of the five books we're going to recommend, um, they're somewhat specialist recommendations because we've read a lot and we can turn around and say that the academic exercises, half a king, monstrous infection, affections, yeah. Uh, whatever else you might, we might choose to recommend as, as, as the remaining books, maybe Tiger Man by Nick Harkaway, you know, maybe Nina Allen's The Race, maybe Ancillary Sword by Anne Leckie, maybe uh, The Mirror Kingdoms by um, by Cameron Hurley, that, that, that these are specialist recommendations. Similarly, like if you're reading YA and you want to read Garth Nix's fabulous Clarial mm. or anything by Maggie Stiefvater, who is spectacularly wonderful, or Rainbow Rowell, or if you want to read Scott Westerfeld's Afterworld, which is also a very fine YA book, you know, or even something that's sort of a YA crossover, like Carl Schroeder's Lockstep, right? Which is science fiction, mm-hmm. it's not really sold as YA, but it's basically a YA novel. The other the, thing that, that you know, related to that is, you know, when we think about when we think about gifts for the holidays, for Christmas mm-hmm. or Hanukkah or birthdays or Kwanzaa or whatever holiday you want to celebrate, we don't necessarily need to think about this year's book either. No, no, no. Uh, and, and, and some of the books that 
Um, the, 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 the Vandermeers have done some giant anthologies. Oh, yes. Uh, time travel. Uh, they did the other one called The Weird. Uh, those are books which... The Wonder uh, Book? My, my, go ahead. No, my, but my guess is most genre readers are not going to shell out the kind of money for these things, but would love to have them. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, a book I'd actually recommend quite strongly this year, Subterranean Press just finished the uh, nine-volume collected stories of Robert Silverberg with a book no. called Millennium Express, which features all of Bob's sort of last 15 years or so of stories. And particularly, I've got to tell you, I mean, this amounts to the major new Robert Silverberg collection for the last 15 years. And, and if you mention that, Silverberg's former almost roommate, Harlan Ellison, has yeah. what, might be, what might be the most... Actually, I said this in, 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 in the column which will appear in January. I think the most useful collection of Harlan Ellison stories is also coming out from Subterranean in January, The Top of the Volcano, which well, are only yeah. award-winning stories. Yes. I'm actually hoping that will be in store in, in December, because it should be out in December. And if it is, would, would be a, would be a strong Christmas pick. Have you lost me? No. I was I, thinking that the, the interesting thing... There's an interesting strategy, as long as we're completely rambling on one topic into another. There's an interesting strategy between behind subterranean presses, the top of the volcano. Uh, the stories are not selected by an editor. They're not selected by Harlan himself. They're simply stories which have won awards. Hugo Awards, Nebula Awards, Bram um, Stoker Awards, Edgar Awards for a couple of them, which is the same strategy, if I'm not mistaken, that Del Rey used, I think it was Delray, a couple of years ago for the best of Connie Willis, collection of only award-winning stories. Yes. And I guess what, what interests me is my question to you as an anthologist is that making decisions like that, and there's another writer who I probably shouldn't name who put out a book a few years ago of award-nominated stories. Um, I don't think any of which actually won. But that takes the anthologist out of the equation, doesn't it? It certainly takes – well, yeah, pretty much it takes the anthologist or editor out of the equation. I guess there's a, a basic question of story order, but even that would be resolved by the order in order of which they, were, they won the awards, I suppose. I mean, I, I love the fact that uh, Subterranean are publishing Top of the Volcano. I find it a deeply problematic book. It, 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 our, everything that I want to do as an editor screams against that book. Uh -huh. for, for, I think, all sorts of very, very good reasons. For all that, it's a very good book, and I strongly recommend it, just based on its tables of content. The, the fact that I know the table of contents, the fact that I know who's produced it, I unreservedly recommend the book. It's 500-odd pages of spectacularly good short fiction. That said, it's not the best of Harlan Ellison, and that's the book I would like to have seen done. Well, the best of Harlan Ellison is going to, and we, we should, we hope at some point we will be able to talk to yeah. you about this. The best of Harlan Ellison is going to include some very early stories, which Harlan knows are very good stories, and which didn't win awards, which were not... I mean, there, there, there was a point at which, and this has happened to Harlan, it's happened to any number of writers in the field, it's certainly happened to Tony Willis, where you become the person that gets awards. And sure. so there are stories which have won awards, stories by both of those authors, which have won awards, which in most literary senses are not as good as some stories that are lesser known. That's the problem with the awards. Uh, there is. I mean, I will say, though, I mean, to segue completely away, I guess, from this best of the year sort of theme for a moment and into something you touch on in your review, it is interesting to have this particular book come out now in some ways. I would love to see it go on to a broader trade publication for a very simple reason. I feel we are, you know, we're in an era where Harlan could be either regarded as a little bit forgotten or overlooked or at least, how would I put it, known for things other than his best short fiction. And well, so, yeah. sorry, yeah. And so, oh, and when I talk to a particular generation of readers today, they synopsize Harlan down to one 2006 event that has nothing to do with his literary, with his literary career at all. And I think anything that acts as something of a counteractive to that, that draws people back to the sheer quality of work that he wrote particularly back through the late 60s into the 70s and that's a, really is it i mean not that he didn't write fine work later but that was his golden period um 
anything that draws people back to that, I think, is a valuable and worthwhile thing because there's a corrective that needs to be provided, and this book could be it. I agree completely. Uh, and I, I, I think that a lot of people, as, I, as I'd said in the review, most of, I'm guessing that most science fiction readers alive today were not even born when Harlan won those first, the, the, his first Hugo and Nebula for uh, Repent Harlequin, and two years in a row, Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man, and um, I have no mouth and I must scream. So the importance of separating the work from the personality is true not only of Harlan, it's of anybody who has a very high profile in the field, good or bad. Connie Willis is certainly, and deservedly, one of the most delightful and one of the most beloved people in the field. Um, that does not necessarily mean that all of her fiction is equally beloved. Uh, to, to use one even more recent tragic example, um, Jay Lake. Jay yeah. Lake was an outsized personality. He was ebullient. He was entertaining. He was a character. He was a fixture on the scene. Um, and now, you know, at a certain point, you have to say, okay, now all we have left is the fiction. So shouldn't we be, be, we be doing that with all the writers saying, okay, let's look at the fiction. Let's not, let's not think about the anecdotes. Let's not think about anthologies of stories about Harlan Ellison that uh, could easily be compiled by some mean folklorist. If you look at the fiction itself, it, it tends to speak for itself, whether the, whether the author is enormously popular and beloved or whether the author is very controversial. Well, I guess perhaps the maybe the fairest way I could look at this, or try to try to put this is, uh, and, and I have to say I don't think Harlan is guilty of any egregious thing particularly, but um, maybe it's a case of looking and seeing if the fiction actually is a corrective for the, repu the reputation, because in some ways the fiction gives a truer story, you know, representation of of the person. I mean, I'm thinking, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion that was discussed at World Fantasy about H.P. Lovecraft being the face of, the physical face of the World Fantasy Award. Exactly. Now, the truth is that whilst his, he had vilely racist views, at least at one part in his life, some of that is actually reflected in his fiction, that kind of yes, perception. So, if there, you know, if there's someone who's controversial, then you would think maybe that that whatever caused that controversy would be reflected in the fiction. If it's not there, well, maybe it gives you a different perspective on the person as well, I think. And so I'm looking at this, and I, I mean, I think there's some spectacular stories. And if you just read something like The Whimper of Whip Dogs, you'd have to be amazed by what Harlan could do. Well, and I think also that you'd be amazed by the fact that he was doing this sort of thing in terms of what we are talking about with genre blending earlier, doing it decades before other people were doing it. Uh, I think it strikes me about looking at... at uh, well, the top of the volcano is probably, it's not the best of Harlan Ellison, you're right. It's the most honored of Harlan Ellison. And some of that uh, reflects, I suppose, um, his reputation, his persona, more than the quality of the fiction. But by and large, it, it, it gives you a kind of neutral selection of his fiction. And what's striking about a lot of that fiction is that um, most of it isn't science fiction. Yeah. Most of it is not even close to being science no. fiction. No. I'm sure Harlan has said a hundred times that he's not a you know, science fiction writer. Right. Uh, well, he was he was perfectly willing to be a the most visible figure in the science fiction community for, I'm going to say, close to 20 years. But he's absolutely right in saying that. Most of his fiction is not that. Yeah. Um, and, and when you look at these stories, you think, well, maybe we've been looking at them the wrong way. The other problem that comes up with Harlan um, is that... A number of people I've talked to, here's an example. One of the novellas in the collection is A Boy and His Dog, yep. which is a post-apocalyptic novella that has a really problematical narrator in it uh, that was made into a film uh, by L.Q. Jones, I believe. And any number of people have seen the film. And the film is, frankly, fairly offensive in terms of its gender attitudes. It's hard to defend the film. Uh, any number of people have seen the film and not read the story. And there was an essay, if I'm not mistaken, or a letter to the editor, and I'll have to look this up because if, if I'm wrong, somebody will catch me on it. I think a, a letter or something from Joanna Russ, of all people, defending the story to people who had only seen the film. Yeah. So that's the other problem with Harlan. Harlan is the guy who litigates. Harlan is the guy who sues the Terminator. Harlan is the guy who 
made uh, this basically sexist film, and he's not. Uh, he's a more complicated figure than that. And, you know, it, it's it's fair to pull it all back to the fiction. It's like with Lovecraft, pull it back to the fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not, I realize particularly in the modern era, this is a hugely controversial issue. Right now, it's a hugely controversial issue about separating the author from the work and the reputation, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, this is worth um, looking at as a, a corrective. And whilst I hope that Subterranean Press sell 100 million billion copies of it, I also hope there's a broader edition because I would like lots of people to be able to read it and see what kind of a, uh, of a writer Harlan is. I would like people to, yeah, and I think this is true about everybody. And you mentioned Lovecraft, uh, and, and I would mention Harlan. I would mention even people who are um, almost universally loved, like Connie or Jay Lake. In all cases, you have to look at the fiction and not at the figure. Lovecraft is Lovecraft bothers me a little bit uh, for a couple of reasons. One is there are stories of his that are frankly racist. It's hard to read a story like the horror of Red Hook. And it, right, they're not just anti-African-American. They're anybody, in any group of people that he describes as swarthy, Italians, Jews, Eastern Europeans, Greeks, he just didn't like anybody. He was really an unpleasant person. And some of the fiction shows that, not his most important fiction. Uh, but there is a point to be made, which is one that Peter Straub made on his Facebook page, that if you're giving an award to somebody um, and we have two recent examples, the most recent being Sophia Samatar and the one before that being Nydia Korf. You're giving an award to somebody when the nature of the award seems to be almost an insult to the sensibility, you need to take into account the award recipient. Yeah. And I think that's a completely valid point. Yeah, I think it is. Now, the other problem is, as people point out online and other places, well, wait a minute, there's the Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America. And Edgar Allan Poe had several bizarre personal habits. There's the Hugo Award, and nobody knows much about Hugo's personal life, but you get the sense that maybe he wasn't that open-minded or tolerant a person. So you can follow that line a long way. But by and large, people who get the Hugo Award have no idea what Hugo Grunberg was. Most of us don't. Most of the people who get the Edgar Allan Poe Award have long since separated the fiction from, uh, they get, get the Edgar Award from this, they've long since separated the fiction from, from the man. And to some extent, we need to do that too. My issue with the Lovecraft statue is that I don't think Lovecraft is a representative of world fantasy. I think he's representative of a narrow slice of American Gothic horror, which is a, certainly a part of fantasy, but not the whole. And you know, my, my the explanation to me of why he was chosen as the symbol of the award, which may or may not be accurate, is that he was incredibly supportive of a wide variety of new and upcoming writers, and so that was seen as worthy. And and who knows, you know? I mean, personally, personally, I always think choosing individual is a bit problematic. And if I were choosing an individual to represent world fat, you know, like fantasy, it probably actually would be someone like J.R. Tolkien or something. But I wouldn't choose to use a person. I think it's best to use something non-representational. But I have the same problem with J.R.R. Tolkien, and I, 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 I really don't know what his attitudes are. I mean, God knows we wouldn't want to have a uh, an award in the shape of Ruol Dahl, who was... Well, I mean, I, if, if I was going to look at Tolkien just for a second, you only have to look at the letters that he wrote to German publishers about wanting to publish his books to know that he seems to have had a pretty, been a pretty decent That's kind true. of a person. My problem with Tolkien is not that. It has nothing yep. to do with Tolkien. My problem is that when you have something called the World Fantasy Award, which is an ever-expanding field sure. of fiction, yep. uh, if you give it to a horror writer, essentially a gothic horror writer, you're privileging one aspect of fantasy. If you give it to an epic fantasy writer, you're privileging one aspect of fantasy. If you were to give it to a Fritz Leiber, if you were to have something in the shape of Fritz Leiber, who is about as, now think about it, about as creepy-looking as Lovecraft was, you're privileging a kind of sword and sorcery fantasy. I think the award has to represent all the different iterations of fantasy that have emerged over the last 50 years. That'll be interesting trying to do that. I don't know how they can do that, and that's not my problem. <laughs> what, set them an impossible job and then run away, Gary? Is that the plan? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the World, Horror, the World Horror, the Bram Stoker Award, one of them, I don't know which one, has a kind of haunted house. Now, a house, and I don't, I don't know who designed it. It's really cool. I've seen some of them. Peter Straub has like a dozen of them. 
and it's 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 a it's a sort of mysterious house. And if you want to, I think you can put a light inside it. And it's it's unsettling, and it's kind of creepy, and it suggests a magical space, but it doesn't suggest the work of a particular author. No, a haunted house story could be a science fiction story. It could be something as contemporary as Lauren Bukes's uh, novel Before Last. Uh, um, yeah. it, it could be Bulwer Lytton. It could be all sorts of things. It, 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 it's, it's an image of a genre icon, not right. of a particular writer. It's, it's like the Hugo. Now, nobody believes in the old needle-nosed V2 rockets that are essentially the template for the Hugo Award, but everybody knows that a rocket ship sort of represents science fiction. Yeah. They do. They do. Well, on that note, Gary, we've stumbled, and I do mean stumbled, along to a full hour, which means we can stop... And we can get on with our days. Please, please stop. (laughs) I would like to think, and I'm wrong, and we will find out if I am, that some of our veteran listeners have been waiting for a podcast where we wander aimlessly through whatever comes up. So this is for them. (laughs) (laughs) And I will say that, I mean, we had hoped to see more of our veteran listeners at World Fantasy. We saw several of them. Fred Kish couldn't make it, and I'm hoping we'll see him maybe next World Fantasy. Because it's not that far, you know, not that far away geographically. Yes, the next world fantasy where we will try to certainly schedule a time to meet everybody who wants to meet us. We're terrible at this, but we should. And I'd also like to just quickly send out a some good wishes on behalf of the podcast to recent uh, podcast guest guest Gardo Desois and his wife Susan Casper. Our thoughts are with you, with you, and we hope all is well. Hope is all is well. And until until next week, Gary. I'll talk to you then. We'll talk to you in a week. Hopefully with a guest or two. With a guest or two. When we will be, as we are now, the Cood Street Podcast. <laughs>